This episode of The Gander Frame is supported by Fujifilm's new integration with Frame.io, Camera to Cloud. A new integration between Fujifilm and Frame.io allows transferring images or video to the web directly from your Fujifilm camera using C2C technology. Find out more by visiting fujifilm-x.com and click Camera to Cloud. We also have the support of Nikon, whose latest camera is the Z8, a mirrorless camera that provides a small but powerful tool for any genre of photography or video. With its 45.7 megapixel sensor and an 8K 60p recording capability, the Z8 provides the means to unleash your creativity. Find out more by visiting NikonUSA.com forward slash podcast Z8. On February 19, 1942, President Roosevelt signed off on Executive Order 9066. That order during World War II led to the forced relocation and incarceration of hundreds of thousands of people of Japanese descent, two-thirds of whom were American citizens. Ordered to leave behind homes and businesses, men, women, and children relocated to makeshift communities in the West and Midwest until the end of the war. It's a tragic moment in American history when fear and racism allowed a country to deny people their rights, both as citizens and human beings. This event is likely an objective moment in history for most of us. But for former occupants of these camps and their families, it's a painful legacy that casts a long and lingering shadow. Sandy Sugawara's parents and grandparents were sent to those camps. But the wounds and pain of that time weren't shared with her. It was only after the death of her mother, the Sugawara, and fellow photographer Katiana Garcia Kilroy created and produced their work, Show Me the Way to Go Home. The monograph includes photographs of what remains of these camps, as well as historical texts and personal stories. The volume is a loving and respectful acknowledgement of people who suffered the consequence of a country not living up to its ideals. This is Ibarion X, and welcome back to The Candid Frame. All right, Sandy, Katiana, welcome to the show. It's a real pleasure and an honor to, to have you on here. Thank um, you. I, I, grew, I grew up in Southern California, so I had some understanding of uh, the Japanese internment that happened during World War II. Um, but this gave me an excuse to get uh, to dive a little deeper than I have in the past. And I have to say uh, how I was continually surprised by so much that I learned by looking at the photographs and 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 reading you know, the um, the poetry and the essays that were contained in, in the book. I'd like to start with, for those who may not be familiar with it, uh, an explanation of, you know, Executive Order 9066, um, what led up to it, and what was, and what the, what the result was of it. Um, well, um, it was after um, Pearl Harbor's bond, and um, they decided that they wanted to... Um, they decided Japanese Americans were dangerous to have on the West Coast, so they they um, had an order that everyone who was living in these so-called exclusion areas were going to be moved 
uh, to mass facilities. And they were first sent to um, uh, fairgrounds and slept in horse stalls while these camps were being built. And then everybody was moved um, in mass to these 10 camps. There were 120,000 Japanese Americans moved to people of Japanese descent, immigrants and their children were moved there. Yeah, I live in uh, Altadena, California, which is probably only 15, 20 minutes from Santa Anita Racetrack, which is one of the locations where um, you know the Japanese Americans were uh, first, you know, uh, processed for lack of a better word, mm -hmm. and then eventually set off to, to to the camps. And I remember being there and just sort of imagining what that space, that big space, must have looked like with all those thousands and thousands of people that were there. My my mother said the the racetracks, the so-called, um, you know, um, where, where they stayed when they were waiting for the camps to be built, were just awful. They were manure. <clears throat> they were. Oh, their horses ever, you know, had been there. And she said it was just an awful experience. The thing that triggered this this project was your mom passing away and the discovery of this of this box by her bedside. Um, right. What did you What did you find in there? Um, well, after my mother passed away, I was cleaning out her room and I found this metal box, and I didn't know what was in it. And I opened it, and much to my surprise, my there were several things from my father, including his wallet. And uh, I opened his wallet, and he had his golf card and his um, card from uh, the grocery store and different things. But I also found some meal passes from Amachi, which is the camp where he was staying. And I realized if he was carrying this around with him all this time, that he hadn't really gone over it, that it still really um, upset him. And mm. I also noticed that he had his Boy Scout card and when he was um, in camp, they investigated him because his father was a community leader and they wanted to see if he could be a spy. He was in high school. And one of the things, um, every, everybody they interviewed said that he was a great kid and the Boy Scouts particularly stood up for him and said he was, you know, a peach. And so I, I guess maybe that's why he carried the card around all the time. I know that when my dad passed away and we had to go through his his things, it was, you know, obviously a, a difficult thing to sort of have to do. And one of the th strange things uh, sort of about it was seeing my dad's life sort of consolidated into a bunch of stuff, you know, that you had sort of parsed through. Um, I didn't make any discoveries like you did, but that must have been quite... Um, quite striking emotionally. Because you one, you're sort of grieving and you're lost, but then you get this this box with a whole bunch of questions that come out as a result. Absolutely, no, it was very striking, and I was kind of shocked because my dad seemed like a pretty happy-go-lucky guy and was always up and cheerful. And another thing that was in there was his um, his father's autopsy. Um, and um, I, I then called for, I uh, filed for the records of his, um, his death, and it said that they had diagnosed him for hemorrhoids, but in fact he had cancer. Um, and uh, another thing that was in there was a sermon 
by a minister who was very sympathetic to the play, the Japanese Americans. And he started out with, um, you know, why have they forsaken me? Um, so, and there was also a autograph book from all his friends where they wrote down the address of their, where they were, which camp they were going to and their address of the camps when they were leaving. So he had kept all this uh, close to him and never mentioned it to me. So it was pretty shocking. You you started the project pretty soon after. Tell me why it it, it sort of launched it so so quickly, because <laughs> that's one well, of the things I was kind of surprised that it didn't take more gestation, more you know. It seems like you just immediately dived into it. Right. Well, so Katyana and I had gone to um, a photography gathering of friends. Uh, all of us actually had taken a workshop with Sam Abel. And we all met in um, Los Angeles. And while we were there, we Katiana and I um, drove over to Manzanar because I'd never been to any of the camps before. And we photographed them. And we realized that there was a lot of history there. And we thought, well, you know, maybe we should start photographing the camps. But I didn't have a real, um, a real project in mind. It, we were just intrigued by the possibilities. And... Um, I even told my mother, and she said, why would you want to go to them? They were terrible places, and they were just awful, and there's so much dust. And I said, well, I want to capture all that. Then when she was in the hospital, and she talked so much about the camps and how awful it was, and you know, she kept saying, like, why didn't our, our friends and, and the community stand up for us? And why were the Japanese-Americans singled out? The, we were all, they were also fighting the Germans and the Italians, and why didn't they face mass um, incarceration? And so, and why didn't we fight more for our rights? So I thought if we went to the camps, we could sort of get the answers to a lot of those questions. And I talked to Katiana about it, and she was very interested in this too. And so we thought that, you know, I, I wanted to do something after my mother died, and that seemed like the right thing to do. Mm-hmm. Cassiano, when you, when you began this, this, this project with Sandy, how much knowledge did you have yourself about this period? So I wasn't completely ignorant. Um, I had heard vaguely uh, that there had been incarceration camps during World War II in, in the U.S. because I had seen some photographs uh, by Dorothea Lang and uh, Ansel Adams. But uh, I didn't know the extent of uh, what had happened. I thought that maybe a few dozens of uh, Japanese Americans had been rounded up and taken to these camps. I didn't know that uh, it was whole families uh, for a total of 120,000 people that had been sent to these camps. So it was something very new to me. And um, so when I heard about it, I thought, oh, if I, who am very interested in this type of issues, know nothing about it, this really needs to be uh, known much more. In looking in both of your works, uh, even before this project, it seems like each of you had an an interest in spaces. Mm-hmm. You know, that, that don't necessarily have people in them, but are suggestive about the presence of people in them. And it seemed like this project was sort of a natural segue for the work that you have already created. But 
now there was um, an emotional resonance that accompanied it. Um, how do you think that that influenced the way that you you saw these scenes and, and chose to photograph them? I was very interested in capturing the sense of isolation, the sense of loneliness, um, the, the sense that um, when you were at that camp, you felt that nobody in the world knew you were there. And, um, and we actually did take some photos with people in them, but it seemed much more powerful when there were no people present in these places. I think also um, that this this does play to our you know uh, our style of shooting that we we had done a lot of that beforehand, but it it also uh, it was very important in the storytelling. I think not to have people in in the uh, in the pictures. And how about for you, Katiana? Yes. Um, well, uh, for me, it was a big challenge to try to represent memory in photography. And uh, because photography, um, you know, to me is, is a way to um, transmit subjectivity, you know, how you feel about things. Um, I thought it was um, probably the, the perfect medium uh, to do what Sandy was uh, was mentioning, no? how to uh, transmit the experience of being in the camps. No? Before then, I had done a lot of urban photography, uh, but generally without people. So that um, I found interesting your comment about uh, us leaning into spaces without people, um, and I had been mostly interested in the traces that people leave in cities. No? So, so the transition to, to this project at the beginning was a bit intimidating because I hadn't done landscape in a systematic way. But um, you know, sadly, it's not that um, it did take me a little bit out of my comfort zone, but um, you know, it was very natural uh, to start looking for uh, traces of, um, of, of people in spaces, of other lives. Uh, that uh, had happened in, in these spaces. I think another thing is I, I wanted people to feel like they were there. I wanted them to feel like it was their experience. We wanted a, a, a you know a book that felt very immersive, and I think that by not having people on the photos, the people could put themselves in the, in those locations. I think that um, the essays and the little anecdotes of, of the people and their experiences there really help with that. Mm -hmm. um, there's a couple of stories in there of like an artist, for example, you know, who who had, who had been uh, a painter before being interred and then later became um, teaching painting there. And 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 you, you can see through his work a sense of what it was like to be there in like in the moment. Mm -hmm. And and then to see the sort of the starkness of the place now, it it sort of provided a bridge between what seemed like a lifeless la landscape, and then still being able to sort of tap into what the experience must have been like when it was filled with thousands of people. It's interesting that you single him out because 
he's one of the reasons that I wanted to go to the camps. I had I had a small book of his paintings, and I felt that he really captured that mood. And then I heard that he started a camp, started the art school at Topaz because he felt that that art could save them. That while they were um, in prison, that if they had art, that they would not lose their soul. And um, and, and I, I could see that feeling in his painting. So one of the things I wanted to do when I went went to um, Topaz was to shoot the moon over Topaz, which is one mm. of his rather well-known um, well-known paintings. You know, one of the challenges of making these kinds of photographs is that the structures, the infrastructure that existed there uh, at these different locations, um, there's still some evidence of some things and another, they're virtually gone. And photographically, I, I can imagine sort of the challenge of trying to convince, not convey, not to capture images that just don't document what's there, mm -hmm. but to provide a sense of, as you said, a feeling. Um, how did your collaboration sort of help you? How do you, how do you think it helped both of you to create your images um, to be able to, uh, to achieve that? Was it sort of a riffing that existed between the two of you that was helpful? Yeah, that's interesting you put it that way, but, but there was. We, we would walk into these areas, they're huge open um, expanses of land, and one person would go one place, one person would go another, and we'd sort of you know come together and talk, and we'd show each other what we were shooting, and we'd say, oh, that looks really great, and maybe you could try that or that. Um, so, we, and then we go off by ourselves for a while again and walk around, but I hadn't thought of that, but there were, there was a bit of a riffing, you know, we, we would sort of like, uh, there were a couple that she showed me that I was like, wow, that's great. You know, I would go back and maybe do this and this, or, or we'd look at each, we'd go back at night and look at our photos and say, you know, we really have to go at sunrise or we really have to go at high noon <clears throat> when the, um, when the sun is really strong. And how was it for you, Katiana? Yes, so I think it was um, important not to plan too much um, in terms of you know what shootings each one of us was going to to do. So as Sandy says, so we would be wondering intuitively uh, where we would want it to shoot, and um, and then the exchange, uh, particularly at night, you know, after after each session. Uh, really, you know, helped us in terms of redirecting our shootings. No? But uh, we didn't talk much no, during the day while we were shooting. Uh, it was more um, after after we ended the sessions at the end of the day. No? So I think it, each one of us was in a certain in a certain zone. No? Yeah. Uh, doing the photographs, uh, which uh, I think uh, to convey. What we meant, we're talking about the subjective experience of being there uh, was was important. Um, a photographer friend of mine said to me, "Did the two of you like get any fights? Like, there's a perfect location, and both of you want to do that view." And and I said no because even when we were standing in the same place, somehow our photos were different. You know, we would frame it differently, different lenses. And so I, I think we were both just really focused on getting the best 
possible photos from that location, we probably weren't going to go back because mm-hmm. we, you know, was be, be there for four or five days. Uh, so it, we we didn't have those kind of disputes. I was watching a, a propaganda documentary that was made during during that time, mm-hmm. and oh man, the the talk about policing a turd. Um, they they really went all out in terms of making this seems like, you know, the Japanese Americans were more than glad to give up everything and for the sake of 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 being good Americans, uh, to abandon their homes, their businesses, their lives, and to be shipped out at these places. And and the truth of it is that it was incredibly traumatic, not just for you know the 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 adults. But also the children, and and as in one of the one of the essays in the book talks about um, the generational passing on of, of of trauma in a variety of sort of different different ways. Um, for you, what I know that your your parents didn't want to sort of talk about it much, um, but how do you think it impacted their they're bringing you up. Um, how do you think that that uh, that influenced their their parentage and what they wanted you to focus on and and aspire to? They were very focused on fitting in. Um, you know, they didn't give any of us Japanese names. They gave us very Anglo-Saxon names: Sandy, my brother's Alfred. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, and that's true with a lot of kids my generation. Well, we're not kids anymore, but when I was growing up, um, and they didn't, you know, they wanted us to um, uh, just fit in. And there wasn't one of the things the government did is they said that people could leave the camps, but they couldn't go into. They had to scatter. They tried to scatter them. They said um, they claimed it was for the the sake of the Japanese Americans, that if there were just two or three here or there, that they would not attract so much uh, negative attention. But what happened is that in most places, um, there weren't a lot of other Japanese Americans, so you didn't have a real strong sense of your culture. When, When I went to high school, there was one other Japanese American girl and one other uh, Chinese girl. And that was my whole, um, you know, reference point for being Asian American. So I, I think that as I grew older and I made more friends who were Asian American and I studied more about Asian American literature and different things, I, I got more of a sense of it. But I feel like the next generation after us um, is, is much more active and they're asking a lot of questions they're, they're actively visiting the sites, they're studying about what happened, and they have a much stronger sense of what it means to be Asian-American. Katiana, what did you find yourself learning as a result of you know, talking with Sandy and her sharing her family stories and you visiting these sites and, and having a tactile ex, uh, experience of these, of these spaces and the history that, that existed there? Well, that... 
it, it's, it's very different no, from reading about this experience and, and going to these places and, and experiencing you know, what, um, what the Japanese-American community um, um, went through. Uh, but um, it was also you know, that um, this, um, what happened then is, uh, doesn't relate just to the Japanese-American community. It, uh, it relates also to other minorities. And something quite interesting as, as the book has come out and um, I was interacting uh, with other people. Uh, so I found uh, uh, quite a few people uh, original from the Middle East or North Africa who relate to this experience uh, because of what happened after 9-11. So even people that um, took, and and now actually I'm I'm living in Cairo since since, uh, last December. So so when I talk about this uh, project, uh, I found people who were living in the U.S. at that time and decided to go back to, to their country because of um, you know how they were um, singled out and uh, and, uh, and and a, a sense of rejection that they found at that time. So so I thought that um, you know through this project uh, that this is something that uh, is not some is not from the past is not from World War Two, but uh, there is still uh, risks you know, of uh, of similar uh, situations being repeated. Uh, tell me about some of the locations, because in reading some of those, some of the land on which uh, some of these 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 camps were located, um, where were sold off like to um, private owners for farmlands, others um, are are have markers to indicate what had happened there. Talk to me about the sort of the diversity of of, of the legacy of these of these spaces and how and how they are, if they are at all, sort of acknowledged for for what happened on on on, on that land. So, so they're they're of a very different. Um, um, they have very different profiles. No? So, three of them are national parks. So, it's like where well established uh, sites are well organized. Um, others are just um, supported because of uh, some private foundation supporting it. And others, which was quite a surprise, um, are still there uh, because uh, certain individuals from the towns nearby took an interest. So, for example, uh, there are two cases of uh, one of a school principal, uh, John Hopper in Amache. Uh, who took an interest and uh, just with his own effort, uh, he organized uh, the students at his school to clean up the camp, to maintain it. And uh, so the camp is there thanks uh, to all the work uh, and generosity that uh, he had throughout all this time. And the same happened uh, with uh, Topaz in um, Utah. Um, so something that um, was was surprising also was that uh, despite what happened, uh, we found uh, people who had nothing to do with the Japanese American community in the towns close to the to the to the camps that took an interest, and it's thanks to them that the sites uh, have some 
degree of preservation and can still visit, be visited. And then the, you want to talk about Poston and Gila River? Oh, yes, of course. There's the two of the camps are in, um, in uh, Indian reservations, uh, which um, they very reluctantly authorized uh, for the camps to be built there. Um, so that was also uh, something that uh, gives a very different uh, perspective and you know, personality. To, we can say camps have a personality uh, to the camps. Yeah? Um, and you know, a, a very uh, paradoxical situation that uh, the camps were in the middle of an Indian reservation. That was one of the big surprises. I had not known that. And I was, and it, it just it just made something already absurd even more absurd. Right. <laughs> that yes. Native Americans um, were basically providing the land for others who were suffering the very same kind of discrimination to basically, you know, facilitate this, you know, this terrible thing. Um. Yeah, they weren't happy about it, and um, and um, one of the other um, interesting things about people sort of stepping up um, to preserve these places is, as, as you um, pointed out, well, in Arkansas, they aren't national parks, but one in one case um, with uh, Jerome, a farmer. Uh, even though he's farming the land, he he kept the tower up, and you know he um, he welcomes visitors and um, gives you a tour of his farm, and um, and got together with some Japanese Americans to have a little um, memorial built so that people could always find the farm. And uh, there's a, a a former mayor named Rosalie Gould who. Um, Took an interest in rower, uh, and there was there was, you know, um, the camp had disappeared and was sold off as farmland. But she raised money to have a um, a memorial there so that people from rower could come back and and find their camp. So, as uh, Katiana said, and then John Hopper was just amazing. My my parents were in Amachi, and I went to Amachi, and he has his students cutting the grass giving tours, cleaning the place up. He goes on eBay and looks for things that have to do with Amachi. And, uh, and it has this little museum he's set up. Uh, he's really been an incredible supporter of, um, of preserving the legacy of Amachi. Yeah. It's it, the found items, like the children's toys, because half, half the population of these camps are children. Um, so it must have been kind of strange and odd to find these toys and other objects associated with children in such a sort of barren and, and stark place, especially knowing what had happened. Yeah, it, it was, it, it was, um, it was, again, this disconnect, you know, you see these whimsical toys and it's in the, um, it's in the middle of the desert. Um, Katiana, you want to talk about the children's village? Yes, there was uh, one of the most surprising. Uh, well, we 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 found many surprises, 
but one of them uh, was the fact that there was an orphanage in one of the camps you know, in Manzanar. Uh, so when the camps were set up, it was decided that orphans uh, were also a threat to national security. So they looked uh, for um, not only there was some segregation going on in California, uh, so there were orphanages just for Japanese-American kids, but there were others uh, where they were not segregated. But um, they went looking into the files to see which kids uh, had some Japanese blood uh, so that they would be taken uh, to the orphanage. Yeah, that one photo, photo, ID photo of that one child who, once they discovered that he was Jeff Japanese, that exactly. they took him out of the orphanage and put him into the camps. And it's just... Yes, yes. He discovered uh, because of this that um, he had he was of Japanese descent. His, his mother was uh, Japanese American and his father was uh, Franco Irish. And they had babies in the orphanage, infants that they brought from the orphanages in California and brought them to the camp. The people, they, they often you hear the term the banality of evil, and people often associate it with with the atrocities against the, the Jews and homosexuals in Europe during World War II. But Americans weren't too far behind, you know. Mm-hmm. And when people learned that Hitler, you know, learned everything that he did to the Jews by observing what was being done to blacks here in the United States, it's like, we taught them how to do all that stuff. He, they right. came here to learn how to do all those things. Um, One of the interesting things for Japanese Americans when they went to Arkansas is they were they saw Jim Crow South and they were just shocked at how blacks were treated. And one woman told me that um, uh, one man actually told me that his uh, mother took him into a store and um, he saw a sign that said whites and colors. And he figured he was colored because he was kicked out of California because he Mm -hmm. wasn't white. And he started going in um, the color restroom and the clerk said, no, 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 you go into the white. And he said, <laughs> why? You just kicked me out. Because, and anyway, he said he realized that there were people in Arkansas who were being treated worse than he was. Um, and he just thought that was awful. So, you know, it was uh, and and. Again, um, they would see on the bus the same thing happened that, you know, blacks had to sit in the back and they were told to sit in the front with the whites. And they said it made no sense to them whatsoever. That kind of stuff never rarely makes sense at all. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and, and that just sort of reinforce, reinforces the, the absurdity um, of it all. Um, as you guys started coming together um, with, with, with the work, had you had a book been sort of the goal from the very beginning. How did that evolve evolve for you? I think once we decided that we were going to, um, you know, take this serious as a project, our thought was always a book. And um, we um, were in a workshop with um, Alex Webb and Rebecca Norris Webb and talked to them about it. And they helped us, you know, conceptualize what the book should be about and how it should be structured. So... And we both love photo books, so I, I think that that was always our our goal. 
once we got serious about it. So tell me about the collaboration. So going out and making pictures together is one thing. Sitting down and collaborating and putting together a book. It's it's difficult enough doing it solo. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> exactly. um, well, one thing I should let Katiana talk about is at first she didn't feel that she should be involved in this because she's not Japanese. And so you, you want to talk a little bit? About yes. So... I, I had all this um, self-doubt at the beginning that uh, I didn't make Sandy aware, but I was thinking, am I entitled to talk about this experience? I have nothing to do with the Japanese-Americans. Until I talked to a photographer uh, that we, we both talked to, um, a Japanese-American photographer, and uh, without asking anything, he said, at the end, I think it's really important that you're part of this project because this allows the project to go beyond the uh, Japanese-American community, uh, not just because so that it, it's, it's better known, but also because people feel that this doesn't relate just to the Japanese-American community, you know, that, that this goes well beyond that. So this linked um, to what I was saying earlier you know, about um, other minorities, but also about you know, one, one of the messages that uh, we also thought it was important um, in the book is that uh, how uh, certain individuals uh, didn't uh, follow the crowd uh, and stood up, you know? uh, even with very sort of single acts uh, of generosity, of support, uh, that made a, a huge difference. You know? Uh, to the people who were being sent to the camps. No? Um, mm -hmm. uh, for instance, my my grandparents on my mother's side were able to hold on to their farm because their neighbor, who was white, took care of their farm and were, were very honest, gave them the profits from the farm, paid their taxes. Many other Japanese Americans, when they went into the camps, they left their farms with... Um, Caucasians back and, and they, you know, basically stole from them. So they had nothing to go back to. But my my family benefited by the honesty and, and the willingness of this um, Caucasian family to to uh, to work the farm and protect it. So how did we work together? Well, it was complicated by the fact that in the middle of the project, COVID broke out and then she went to Spain. <laughs> So, um, and then she would come back when, whenever we were going to go work on, you know, fly someplace. We did um, a lot of Zoom. Um, I don't know if you can see the wall behind me, but it, it's a great big wall. And we would, I would make printouts and we would uh, we'd sequence on the wall. Uh, she did the same thing on her place. Um, we would, um, we eventually divided up the chapters and she focused on half of the camps. I focused on the other half. We've, and we, we focused on researching those camps. And then we took the first stab at um, sequencing. Usually after we shot, we would sit down before we would separate from each other. And we would go through and we would talk about um, the theme of the camp and which photos really told that story. And so we would kind of pare down the, the photos that we were um, going to focus on when we were in person, but then it was a, a process that we, we spent a lot of time on zoom. <laughs> yeah. Can you give me an example of one of one of the sites and how, 
and how that sort of took shape for you? I can describe it for Amachi, maybe that, because that was the first yeah. one. Um, so um, we, when we were at Amachi, we picked out this, uh, the photos that we thought could really build the narrative we wanted from there. And that was the one where my grandmother was. And she, you know, she talked about, um, um, she talked about how um, the people were in a lot of pain, but there was also a lot of resilience and the fact that they planted so many trees and flowers and turned the desert into quite a beautiful place in a very short amount of time. So we were very focused on, um, you know, capturing both, um, both of those kind of moods. And we went through and we sat down in our hotel room often with like, you know, a glass of wine, some food, and we would go through the photos and, and, um, pick out the ones of hers that um, we liked and the ones of mine that we liked. And we particularly were looking for photos that told different aspects of the story. Then we came back. I made printouts of hers and mine. And then I sat on the wall. I, I pinned them on the wall behind me. And we, you know, moved them around. And we, we figured out kind of... And first we worked with small prints, you know, postcard size. And we just figured out what was the story we were telling. And then we realized, you know, we had way too many and we were trying to trying to um, pare them down. Um, and I think at the end, we were really happy with the story that it told. It used to be that if you preferred a compact camera body, you were giving up a lot in terms of features and functions. The Nikon Z8 proves that wrong. For still photographers, it includes a 45.7 megapixel full-frame sensor with a base ISO of 64. For videographers, it records up to 125 minutes in 4K UHD at 60p or 90 minutes in 8K at 30p. It's a small camera, but it delivers whether you practice portrait, wildlife, street, or any other kind of photography, or you just want to document those special moments with your family. It's a system that provides you access to a diverse line of Z-mount lenses, as well as legacy F-mount lenses using the FTZ-2 mount adapter. So whether you're upgrading from a DSLR or this is your first mirrorless Nikon camera, you have an amazing selection of lenses to choose from. Find out more about the Z8 and how it can make a difference in your photography by visiting NikonUSA.com forward slash podcast Z8. And we so appreciate your financial support. Many of the things that we've accomplished wouldn't have been possible without you. We've grown and improved because you believed in what we've done and continue to do for you and the greater photographic community. And your financial support is a big part of that because your donations help to keep this thing running. We run a really lean ship here, but the shows still cost time and money to produce. You might not be able to help us with the first part, but you can certainly help us with the latter by becoming a Patreon supporter today. You can do this by contributing $5, 10 $20 or more a month by visiting patreon.com forward slash the candid frame. By doing so, you help us to produce a show dedicated to great and insightful conversations about what it means to be a photographer and lead a creative life. 
Again, it's patreon.com forward slash candid frame. Thanks. The incorporation of the, of the text, the essays, the poetry, uh, the illustrations, how did that, how did that fit into, into the, the, the plan for the book? How did that evolve? Originally, we had um, thought about including the narrative in each of the chapters. So we had selected uh, a person that reflected what we thought was represented the main features of the camp. So in one of the first versions of the book, because we did several versions, like uh, three, four, um, we we actually had uh, featured the story, uh, which was mixed uh, with the photographs. And then um, as we were uh, um, doing the editing um, with uh, the designer that was helping us, David Chiki, uh, we decided to compile all the stories um, at the end. So still keeping uh, the features that uh, we had selected for uh, the stories that we had under each camp, but uh, having having them all together. And if if you uh, one one thing that uh, was important for us in the story is that um, still to represent the subjective experience of, of being in the camps was to use uh, quotes. Uh, from the people in each story, so that um, you know the way uh, the the way that uh, people reading the stories could relate to 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 these uh, people would be more emotional um, rather than something factual you know, about the lives of these people. The the design of the book went through many changes, and we started out you know with a um, a dummy a book dummy. And we thought we had the design we wanted. We worked on it about a year, um, going through different iterations. And then, um, as Katiana mentioned, we were working with David Chickey, who is um, the co-founder of Radius, our publisher. And um, about um, two months before we were going to go to Verona for it to be printed, he and his staff said, we, we, we decided this this." Uh, arrangement isn't working and we were like what and you want all the photos in the front you say you want an immersive experience mixing the photos and the text and the vintage and the old photos is not creating an immersive experience and it'll it'll be better if you have all the photos in the front and then in the back we have the the stories um, and then, you know, and the, the paintings and the old photos. And for a few days, Katiana and I were like, what? Mm. <laughs> you know, because we had been living with this book for about two years. But once we calmed down, <laughs> uh, uh, it, it made sense. And, and I, I'm really glad that they did that. I, I think it was the right thing to do, and I'm quite happy with it. But, you know, when you, you've been living with something for a couple of years and you think this is how it's going to be, and then... All of a sudden, it's not. It, it, it took a little while for my head to quit spinning, but once, once I, you know, saw it and I, I, I realized what it was going to be, I thought that was the right thing to do. Yeah, I think it works this this way. Yeah. Um, Good. Because I can understand how going back and forth between the images and the text can be 
disruptive. Um, and the design of the book is beautiful. I mean, the, 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 I love the paper. Um, it's just great. And I love the, the, the transitional paper that you use. Mm-hmm. I don't mm-hmm. know what exactly what it is, but it was just, just I love the attention to detail. Well, we have rice paper, and that was one of Katiana's first things when we were talking to David Chiki. She said she really wanted rice paper, and I personally love rice paper, but I thought I didn't know how practical it would be, how easy Mm -hmm. it would be. to. And he said, well, there is some rice paper that's pretty strong, and um, and he um, he, he's – sent for it and it took forever to get there uh, but we we waited and waited for it um, it was when there was a supply chain issues and it took quite a while for it to get there but the the rice paper um, at first we were going to use it um, in a lot more pages but it turned out to be pretty expensive so I, I like the his design of um, starting each chapter with the rice paper mm-hmm. and then the the paper that the photos are on is more polished, um, to be, and I think it uh, the photos benefit from that. And then the the um, the, the stories that um, the paper that uh, the stories are on is a different sort of paper, just a little bit coarser. And I, I think sort of having different papers and separating that out uh, works really really well. And I'm happy that we have had a printer and a binder who was able to handle that so beautifully. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's just like a printer, you know, really enjoys complications. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, the, the printer was amazing. You know, we, we were um, on press and it was, it was an incredible process to watch. Yeah. I mean, that's, my dad was a pressman. Wow. So I have fond memories of being in his in in his print shop, and I can just imagine seeing your 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 work coming out of the machine and getting spit out over and over it's and over exciting. again, and taking a look at it, and and being able to sort of collaborate with, you know, with basically an artisan in creating your in creating your book is must have been a wonderful experience. Oh, it was. They were incredible. I mean. They spoke Italian and we spoke English, but you know, you just sort of point to things, and and, um, and they were they were so intuitive, and they could make changes just like that, and it came out just what you wanted. It's really incredible. So, so tell me about how you got connected with your publisher, and what was and what did you need to do in order to to help facilitate this book being made? Because you know, uh, a lot of times photographers have to come up with a certain amount of funds in order to even get their book to be considered viable for publication. So what was, what was that whole journey for like for you, for the two of you? Um, we met David Chickie in a workshop that Alex Webb and Rebecca Norris Webb had with David. And I loved all the comments he made and all the suggestions he made. Um, I knew it was really hard to get published by uh, Radius so we sent him a note saying, we're working on this book. We'd like to hire him as um, our designer. We understood that there was absolutely no, you know, connection between hiring him and being published by Radius is a separate, pro- you know, separate process. And, but we really liked his sensibilities. And he um, uh, said, yeah, he was interested in the project, that he had a small window that he could take us in. So we worked with him on 
the project at book as a as a private designer and um you know we said asked if he could help us figure out how to get it printed and he said yes that was part of his contract for being a designer then after working with him for about um six months uh, we so we were going to raise money for the printing on kickstarter and so we had the kickstarter thing all set up we were ready to go i wanted to use his name um in the kickstarter but i was very careful not to say it was a radius book just to, you know but i i said please read this make sure you're okay with this and he said um mm, i need to talk to you okay i need to talk to you before you go to kickstarter and so I said, um, are you going to break my heart or something? Because I thought that sounded ominous. And I called up Katiana and he said, I need to talk to you immediately. And Katiana was like in, in a meeting. And so she said, OK, just go ahead and talk to him. And then he told me, you know, I, we, we want to publish your book. Um, and he wanted to tell me before I went on Kickstarter, you know, just um, so uh, I, I think we said that on Kickstarter. Um, but um said, um, now I know you can't give me an answer. You have to talk to Katiana to see how she feels. And I said, oh, I can assure you she's going to be very happy. <laughs> I know I can speak to her. <laughs> um, but um, so it was great. Um, and, you know, working with Radius has been fabulous. They're, they are top notch. All the people who work there are so smart and so good and, and so easy to work with. Um, and so collaborative, and they really want to support the artists. So it's, it's just been a, a great experience. And they're passionate about what they do. No? So, so you feel that they put their whole soul and heart no? in, uh, in what they're doing. Yeah. And so that's why, oh, you know, once they took it on, maybe, um, so we raised money from Kickstarter, and that was the money for the, to cover the printing costs. And, um, and then... Um, they um so we were all sort of ready to go we had raised the money the, the it was scheduled at the printers and then that's when they said that they wanted to rearrange the book and i i think that once they they said that when david said when he's hired as a private designer he gives his input but he tries to be guided by his clients but you know when um when we were then a radius book i think that they spend a lot more time thinking you know, this is going to be in their library. So, so what is it exactly they want the book to say? So I, I'm really happy um, that they, that they did insist on that. The other thing that happened was when we, when we were on our way to Verona, they said, you know, we, we just made a printout of the cover and I think we're going to change the cover. And again, we said, what? <laughs> and he, he had already warned us. He said that j j the last time he was there, he changed the a cover um, when it was going to press. But, but again, I think it was the right thing to do. I love the cover. Um, uh, I love the cover they had before, but for various reasons, they didn't think it would work out. And I've just learned to trust them because I, I think they make such wonderful, exquisite books. So um, I'm, I'm quite happy with how everything turned out. Uh, this is a question for the both of you. How did, how did seeing your work through his eyes in terms of him designing the book, how did uh, how did that allow you to sort of like rediscover your own work as a result of what he was doing with it? He, we made most of the selections of photographs, uh, but he did uh, suggest some changes. 
and uh, he also suggested some changes in the sequencing. So, so just uh, with those tweaks that uh, did make a difference, uh, it was you know really I think it it was like uh, seeing our photographs from different angles you know, and through his eyes, you know? mm. and um, and and we I, th I think we you know just just the the, the way the book is designed. Um, at least uh, for me, you know, gave me a different way of uh, of looking at my photographs. You know? So you know, I think it, it it put me in another in another level. You know? How uh, so? Could... So in in terms of you know I I you always one always knows that the design of the book is is really important you know, mm -hmm. to get you know, for the feel of the book. But uh, I didn't realize uh, that even you know my photographs that I know very well. Every time I see the photograph, I can see myself where I took it, mm -hmm. what I was feeling at the moment when I was taking it. I I wasn't expecting you no know, that um, I could get into you know another sort of interesting um, meaning uh, mm -hmm. dimension you know, uh, into my own photographs. So, so that was a, a very interesting discovery. That's know, nice. On, on the, what, what, what can editing do? No? What can good editing do to your own photographs? Yeah, I, I think when um, he made uh, sequencing suggestions, um, I think we both saw things in the photographs that, that we hadn't noticed before. Um, also, I worked with him pretty closely on the, on the box, and his whole idea of making that section come alive, and he he resequenced that, and 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 the way he wanted to use some of the photos, and um, it, David thinks of th uh, these books as very much an art object, and I thought I did too, but it, it it's a. Uh, it, he brought it up to a whole different level. Yeah, that, that I learned a lot. Yeah, that that section. As soon as you open up the box, there's this. It's kind of like a prelude uh, mm -hmm. because it focuses on, on the on the box that you found next to your next to your mother. And I thought that was really kind of fascinating because it took me a moment to sort of figure it out. Right, because at first I thought maybe it was it's something that was inserted into the book. I go, oh no, this is a part of the book. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. it, it it was a very uh, a neat way to to immediately experience this in a personal level through your story, as opposed to just seeing it as a collection of a book uh, a book that is uh, illustrating a collective experience. Mm -hmm. You know, before you can dive in, you have you go through this, and then that sort of like sets the stage for how I will experience everything that comes forward. I thought that's just that was really brilliant. Yeah, and I think originally at one of our uh, versions of the book, we were just going to have that box thing um, as the first, as like the introductory section. So we, you know, so we had my family story, and then we had the camps. Um, and it was going to be like, and I, I like the fact that he took the box and put it in the inside jacket. Kind of like a box in the box. Yeah, box in the box. 
So what's been the response to, uh, to the book? It's, it's been really good. I mean, we've been really happy with it. Um, I've heard from a lot of people, um, and, um, I've heard from people who, um, have said that they, they had no idea. Uh, I've heard from, you know, teachers who, um, said that they felt that this, that the visual emphasis would really help them, you know, um, teach it to their class. And that was one of the things that we really hoped was that by taking a visual approach that it might bring in people who otherwise wouldn't sit down and read a textbook, you know, necessarily. Um, so, and I, I think um, so many people um, that I hadn't heard from in a long time, you know, called me. So they got the book, so they really loved it. And um, it, it had really touched them. So it, it's been it's been nice. Have you heard from many people who were of your generation or, or subsequent generations uh, for whom this experience was a, a pivotal one in terms of their responses to the book? Um, subsequent meaning younger or older? Young, younger. You know, younger you, you were younger. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, I, yeah, I have I have heard from um, people of younger generation and um, and they They've said that they have, they, everyone I've heard from has been on pilgrimages. Um, and the pilgrimages are when the survivors and their, their um, um, children go back to the camps and, and visit. And they said that, um, you know, the book reminds them of the pilgrimages and they want a copy because um, they can pass it on to their children. I've also heard from people who were in the camps. There's a woman who I'm told is in her 90s, and um, she, my neighbor bought the book and took it, who's, she's um, not Japanese-American, and she took it to a friend of hers who's in a knitting group with a woman who's Japanese-American, and they took it to her, and they said she sat there, she's blind, uh, but she sat there with a, um, a uh, looking glass and um, microscope, not a microscope, but a telescope, no, whatever it's called. Magnif magnifying glass? Or? Yeah, magnifying glass. <laughs> sat there with a magnifying glass and um, and was looking at the book and they said um, she spent about an hour doing it and then now they're organizing, they want me to come and talk to um, this whole group of Japanese Americans who um, some of them either went through the camps or uh, their parents did, and they, uh, you know, th this will give them an opportunity to to um, hold on to the memories because they recognize the camps and and, um, and they feel that um, the stories, even though we weren't exactly telling their stories, the stories just resonate. Yeah, Katiana, what is what is this experience meant for you? Well. From, from different perspectives, one from, from the theme, it was an amazing uh, way of uh, getting myself immersed into this topic, learn more about it, uh, visit all these places in deep, deep America that I, I would have never been uh, otherwise, and um, you know, learn about all, all these camps in, in these remote places. 
Um, and then um, as a collaborative project, no? uh, working with Sandy, uh, you know, it was uh, an amazing experience as well. But, um, you know, I think um, um, each one of us individually, even if I had done a different project, would not have been able uh, to achieve what, uh, what we achieved. No? So, so it was both, you know, from, from the topic as well as from the experience of, of working collaboratively in, in such a book. And Tendi, for you, what do you appreciate about having made this a collaborative effort rather than just doing it by yourself? So I think doing a photography project is, um, it's a lot of work and it also can be very draining. And you go through these periods where you think, oh, this is really any good. And go through periods, oh, I have so much to do. And then you get really excited. And I think, um, so several photographers have asked me kind of the opposite of like, wasn't it really hard doing a project? And, you know, did you have to, what happens when you disagreed? I, I found that it made it much easier because when one of us would sort of lose steam, the other one would, you know, ha have a lot of energy and, and kind of carry the ball. And then, they, and then you could pass the ball back and forth. And, you know, in any project you have disappointments, you have things that don't turn out. And um, I, I think we were able to just keep each other going. We had um, someone whose judgment we trusted to bounce uh, ideas off each other. You know, if I took a photo and Katiana said, no, that doesn't work, um, you know, I, I trusted her that, you know, maybe it just didn't work. Um, and and I, I think that the project is better and it also got done more quickly because we were both working on it and, I would really encourage people to consider collaborations for photography projects. Um, I, I think that um, there's, there's a, especially if it's someone that you, who you respect and you trust and, um, you know, you're on the same wavelength. Um, there's an image in the book that serves as to provide the title for the book. Show me the way to go home. Tell me the story behind that. Okay, it's actually show me the way to go to home. Go to home. So, so this is a graffiti that we found on the walls of, um, of the jail uh, that still stands in uh, Tule Lake, you know, which was a high security camp uh, where they would take uh, the Japanese American descents that they considered disloyals. And uh, one of the people that had been in prison within this jail within the camp uh, had written uh, this graffiti in one of the walls which uh, after doing some research, uh, we think may come, uh, it's a misquote from a very popular song at the time, only showing the way to go home. Hmm. And, um, so for us, it was a very moving graffiti because it was probably, you know, what um, everybody, uh, you know, it was the, everybody was, was, was trying to do, you know, in, in, um, everybody that was there in the camps. Yeah, it's, it's, it's poignant, heartbreaking, and apt. Yeah. No, the minute we saw it, we thought that's, that's the title because mm. they just really wanted to go home. That's all they wanted. 
Well, my last question that I ask each guest is I ask them to recommend a photographer for our listeners to discover and explore, and it can be anyone, someone you've long admired or someone you've recently discovered. So who would that photographer be and why? And we'll start with you, Katiana. So there is a Spanish photographer called uh, David uh, Jimenez, um, who um, was a, a pioneer in uh, photo books. Um, so he uh, published a, a book that was called Infinito, Infinite. Um, it's a mixture of abs abstract and referential photography, um, black and white. Uh, the book, uh, I'm not going to tell exactly, the re it's a puzzle. No? I'm not going to say what is the result of the puzzle, but uh, once you discover what is the logic of the book, it's, uh, it's very surprising. Mm -hmm. so he's, a, he's an abstract photographer, uh, but uh, very poetic, uh, and still with enough references uh, to reality, but uh, you know, makes it... Uh, it's, it's, um, it's a very moving uh, photography. And his name is David Jimenez. Thank you. And Sandy? Well, I love photo books. And so uh, the person, the name I want to mention is Susan K. Grant. She has done some um, amazing artist books. And she, uh, I wasn't that familiar with artist books, um, you know, the hand-built uh, books by photographers until the last couple of years, and um, I took a workshop with her. Her books themselves are quite exquisite. She, I think, has about a, a dozen. Um, and then she introduced her class to just amazing um, uh, variety of artist books. And so that's my, my new obsession right now. <laughs> Well, thank you so much to both of you. I appreciate your time and, and, and uh, for sharing such a gorgeous, gorgeous book with me. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks to Sandy and Katiana for joining us. Learn more about their respective bodies of work by visiting sandysugawara.com and katianagarcia-kilroy.com. If you're a fan of our work, you can write reviews on whatever service you use to listen to podcasts and share a favorite episode on social networks, be it Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. Remember to use the hashtag TheCandidFrame. You can support us financially as well by contributing via PayPal or Patreon. Links are in the show notes or on the website. Thanks to Timothy Floyd for his recent contribution. We've also relaunched our newsletter if you want to receive updates on everything related to TCF, including book recommendations, announcements for special events and workshops, not only from us, but also some of our guests, please sign up by visiting our website. And if you can't find every show episode on whatever service you use to listen to podcasts, download the Candid Frame app, available for Apple iOS and Android. And because of your generosity, it's free to download and use. No additional purchases are required. The Candid Frame's audio engineer is Martin Taylor, who you can find at theothermartintaylor.com. And the show's senior producer is Cynthia Parker. And this is Ibarian X, and this is The Candid Frame.